All right. Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to be heading. If you have got your Bible with you and you want to turn that direction, uh, if you're a child of technology, uh, I'll assume you're not looking at Facebook and you're probably looking it up on your phone. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, there's one in the seat pocket somewhere close to you. Uh, congratulations, you now have a Bible, and uh, you can take that home with you. But we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. And so as you guys make your way that direction, let me just remind you that uh, as we're heading towards the close of the letter, that the writer is writing to an audience of Messianic Jews. These are those people who had been steeped in Judaism. This was their culture. This was their family, their upbringing. And yet they've now realized that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Mashiach. He's the, the one that they had waited on. He is the Christ. And so they've converted now to Christianity. And what the writer is doing carefully and, and really in a beautiful way is showing them that all of the things from their past, all these Old Testament stories that they had learned and studied were really just shadows of something better. Every feast, every festival, every prophecy ultimately all pointed back to Jesus being the something better, the fulfillment of what was the shadow of good things to come. And so as he's writing this letter, there's a theme that comes out. And so for several weeks, in fact months now, we've studied this, that the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. And the writer writing, uh, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, he shares with them that he is better than prophets. He then quickly transitions to angels, the messengers of God, and, and transitioning from there to Moses and Abraham and Joshua and all these Old Testament heroes, including the, the priests and the priestly system. He's better than all of that. And so for 10 chapters, he works on what is essentially a doctrinal argument, uh, putting together teachings to help them to understand that Jesus is better. And as he arrives in uh, chapters 8 and 9, we see that he is better than the tabernacle, the very uh, existence of God among the nation of Israel. The tabernacle would be there in the wilderness with them, and God's presence was there. And what he shares with them is that Jesus was the tabernacle. He was the one that came to dwell among you, and God's presence was there with him. And so transitioning from there then to chapter 10, what we find is not only is he a better tabernacle, but he is actually a better sacrifice. You see, because year after year they would go to the tabernacle or to the temple eventually, and what they would have to do is offer sacrifice to atone for their sins, and yet the whole time knowing they're going to be right back in this spot again. I'm going to have to come back here. Another animal's going to lose its life. Another one's going to have to take its place for me because I continue to have a sin nature. And so this kofar, this temporary covering, was one that they knew in the back of their mind as they were in this place of sacrificing that they were going to have to repeat the whole process all over again. And so what we see is, you can hit pause, it's okay. There, go ahead. It might be better than what I'm going to talk about, Evan, honestly. Um, so as we get to this place where we see uh, Jesus being uh, established and, and set firm that he is the great I am, that this really goes back to Moses there at the burning bush. And what God tells Moses is, look, I am that I am. Moses wants to know his name. He says, I am that I am. It's translated for us as Yahweh. Actually, in our language, we only know four letters. The, the name was so holy, they refused to write the vowels. It was Y-H-V-H in the Hebrew. And so that's the reason we're not sure if God's covenant name is Yahweh or Jehovah because they thought it was too holy to even speak, to even write it down. But what it meant was, uh, I am whatever you need whenever you need it. 
So if you're in need of righteousness, I am Jehovah to Sidkenu. I am God, your righteousness. If you need healing, I am Jehovah Rophe, uh, God, my healer. If you need uh, love or covering protection, I am Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, my banner. And so we eventually get to now the New Testament where we see if you need salvation, he is Jehovah Shua. Yeshua in the Hebrew, translated into Greek as Jesus. God, my salvation. What we ultimately need, what, what is missing in this whole equation of sacrifice is a repeated process. We need something that is permanent, that is for all of eternity, and, and this is Jesus in the flesh. And so as we head towards chapter 11, where we were the last time we were in the book of Hebrews, what we see is, for these that uh, believed, the writer knows, look, this is going to take faith. For you to get there, it's going to take you a, a step of faith. A fact can only get you so far, but you're going to have to believe. And he goes through the Old Testament, and what he really is showing is that here's all these people who believed. All your Old Testament heroes, all those that you put so much stock in what they had to think and what they had to say in their actions, these were heroes of the faith. This is chapter 11 called the Hall of Faith by many people. And so as he goes through all these Old Testament heroes from uh, all the way back to Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, eventually arriving to verse 39 where we read, and all these, all these Old Testament heroes having obtained a good testimony through faith. Their testimony was they believed what God said. They actually took him at his word, but they did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. All these believed, and yet they died without receiving the fulfillment of the promise. What were they looking for? They were looking for Jehovah Shua. They were looking for salvation. They were looking for their sins to be taken away, forgotten for all of eternity. And what the writer is saying is, this is the new covenant. This is the gospel message. This is the promise, what Jesus came and gave his life for. This is why as he, by his own words in John chapter 19, verse 30, said, to tell us die. That word means paid in full. It's an accounting term. The debt that you'd racked up, what you could not pay, what you couldn't do yourself, what you could only temporarily cover year after year, he has paid it in full for all of eternity. This is the beautiful promise of the gospel, the new covenant. And so with all that said, we arrive in chapter 12. We're going to cover the first 11 verses as we head towards the end of the book over the next couple weeks. But as we arrive there, you're going to see uh, two analogies. One of a race, an endurance race, and the other of uh, parenthood. And so we begin in verse tw or chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so he starts by saying, therefore. And you know not by now that when you see the word therefore, we ask ourselves, what is it therefore? It, re it refers us back to the previous section of Scripture. This reference to the hall of faith and the promise of the new covenant. This cloud of witnesses. And this cloud of witnesses is witnessing a race. The race isn't a sprint. It's an endurance race. It's a marathon. And the reason the cloud of witnesses are there, at least uh, my take on this, is to actually uh, be there to cheer us on. 
be there to, to support us, to encourage us as we read through these Old Testament stories. Why spend time in the Old Testament? It's so hard to read, hard to understand. Well, what you'll find is as you go there and allow yourself to go there, you'll find a tremendous amount of encouragement from those Old Testament heroes. Because in the spot we're in, uh, oftentimes we feel, well, sometimes we feel wailed on, right? I'm getting wailed on, and Jonah is right there going, hey, I feel you, brother. I've been wailed on too. I'm encouraging you to keep going. We find ourselves in the fire, in the middle of the flame, and, and it feels like everything around us is, is burning up. And you, and you read the story in Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are literally thrown in a fire. And what they can encourage us is you may be thrown in a fire, but you're not going to be there alone. As Nebuchadnezzar looked into the fire, what he saw is a fourth, and he had the appearance of the Son of God. Jesus was actually there in the fire with Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Those were their Hebrew names. Babylon changed their names to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, everything in their world had been crashing down, including their, their own name. And yet God was there in the midst of the fire with them. And they're an encouragement to us to keep going. Or maybe you've got a situation on your hand and it feels like a giant, right? And you get to the story of David against a giant that nobody thought could be beaten. And what I would submit to you is um, that giant in the story never stood a chance. That the odds were stacked against him from the very get-go. David was a trained sniper. No hand-to-hand -hand combat warrior was going to go up against a trained sniper. But God was the one directing the bullet. He was the one directing the stone. And so David provides a tremendous amount of encouragement for us as we go through these Old Testament stories, this cloud of witnesses. And as we go through this race, this marathon, what we see are a couple suggestions here in verse 1. First, let us lay aside every weight. The encouragement here is to lay aside the weights. Now, the weight is not necessarily sin. Uh, the weight are things that just get in the way. They clog up our life. We live lives with calendars and schedules and just so much stuff to do that we can't focus on Jesus because of all the stuff. It's not necessarily sinful, and yet it leaves us in a spot of exhaustion. Now, you could imagine the, the scene if we were to all go to the Boston Marathon, right? Thousands of runners there on the starting line. I mean, how exciting. And, and as you guys are watching the Boston Marathon, here I come up to the line, right? I'm getting ready to go through this marathon. And, and what you're thinking is, man, that guy is fit, right? Fit as a fiddle. I mean, sort of like a cello. But no, most of you are like, what in the world is that dude doing running the Boston Marathon? But here I am, I'm at the starting line, and the starter's getting ready to fire off the pistol to start the race, this 26.2-mile adventure. And, and I go, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got to head over here to where my family's at. I've got a backpack full of 50 pounds of lead. Let me put this bad boy on, saddle this thing up, and now I'm ready to race, baby. I'm like a tiger. Here I go. You would look at me and go, what an idiot. For multiple reasons. One, you're chunky, and you probably shouldn't be on the starting line in the first place. But secondly, you would go, why would a dude that's already not going to survive this, you're probably going to have a heart attack after mile one, Strap 50 pounds of weight on top of it. This is our life in this journey. That we are exhausted. 
worn out because of all the stuff. It's already going to be an arduous journey. It is a marathon that we're going through. And yet we have all this weight that is unnecessary. And what the writer is saying is lay the weight aside. Take the backpack off. Leave it off to the side. It's going to be an adventure. But you don't need more to make it even more complicated. The second thing he says is, and let us, excuse me, and set aside the sin which so easily ensnares us. Now he's talking about these things that trip us up. You see, in, the, in that day, in the day that this was written, they loved the Roman games. And as the gladiators would be there in the arena and people would be cheering, what the gladiators would do for the contestants as they ran away trying to flee from these great warriors, uh, they would take nets with these little weighted balls and they would throw them at their feet, tangling up their feet, ensnaring them, where they would trip and fall and then, you know, like that. It is over for you at that point. And this is what the writer's saying. Here's the sin that we are not putting out of our life and what it does is over and over again, it just trips us up. It knocks us down. We, we don't stand a chance against the enemy who's wielding a sword. He wants to lop our head off, end our entire journey altogether, but we have this sin that trips us as we're going on our way. And so, he continues by saying, let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us. And so the encouragement here is that it is an endurance race. There's no need to get right up there at the starting gate and take off at a dead sprint. We've got to pace ourselves as we go through. No one would run an endurance race trying to sprint right off the bat. There, there's an endurance aspect to all this. But for many of us, we get uh, tired. We have this feeling like it would be easier to just quit. I'm ready to just tap out, be done. This thing is too hard. How can I continue? I'm so glad you asked. Verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we keep going? It is to look to Jesus. You see, our natural tendency is to drop our eyes and to look at all the situation all around us. It's a disaster. There are people on the left, on the right, in front, and behind. I feel trapped. And yet, because our eyes are down, we don't look to the author and the finisher of our faith. And the encouragement here is to look up, get your eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith. It's important to understand that he is both the author. He is writing our story, but he is also helping us, giving us the faith we need to be able to complete the story. If you're anything like me, I have this tendency to want to cry out to God, though, when I'm in the middle of this. Lord, don't you see how bad it is down here? Can't you see what all I'm going through? Stop this thing. And yet when you're in the middle of that, what he is reminding of, uh, us of is that he is the finisher of our faith. One of the most encouraging verses when I've been in one of those type of seasons, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 what the Lord spoke to me on a particular weekend when I was away and feeling like uh, things were just uh, caving down all around. Here's what he gave me. Verse 6 of Philippians chapter 1. Be confident of this very thing. He who has begun a good work in you 
will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Be confident. And, and did you notice how much of that involved uh, me? N none of it. All I had to do was be confident in the one who is the author and the finisher of my faith. His promise was that he started the good work. He's going to complete the good work. I, I just get to be along for the ride. This is the promise for the author and the finisher of our faith. But the question often will come up was, well, how do I know that he's going to be faithful? How do I know that in the middle of this journey, he's not going to just leave me here? What he says in verse 2 is, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How do I know he's going to be faithful? He endured the cross and everything that went into it so that I could be confident, so that I could be saved. And as I look to that, I can realize that he has given me everything. He gave everything when none of it was his fault. And so here he is in the absolute most difficult of situations, uh, not stopping. And, and why? Because of the joy that was set before him. Who is the joy? Um, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. This is what the Lord said in a parable form as he was talking about the kingdom of heaven. He says in verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. The promise here of Jesus is my kingdom is going to look like uh, me coming down I'm going to give up everything. Philippians chapter 2 is known as the great emptying. He literally emptied himself, poured himself into a man so that he could give up everything to buy us back, to redeem us. That's what it means to be redeemed, to purchase something back that was previously yours. And so here he's in this spot. He's saying, this is like a man who goes and sells everything that he has and buys the field. Notice Jesus didn't say, I just went back to buy the treasure back. He bought the whole doggone field. He bought it all back so that we could be redeemed. He so loved the world, God did, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave it all for the entire world so that he could buy back the treasure that was buried. Now, who is this treasure? To your left just a little bit, Malachi Chapter 3, back in the Old Testament, 400 years before the birth of Christ, verse 17 says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And on the day that I make them my jewels, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Who are the precious jewels? They're you and I. We're it. Those that, that believe that by faith believe him and take him at his word, we become that special treasure, you see. And his willingness was to give it all for you and I. Now what the enemy wants to do is create doubt, create suspicion. Surely not me. Surely he didn't give it all for me. And yet, Jesus is shown because he endured the cross, despising the shame, he gave it all for us to prove that we're enough because He's enough. Now, verse 3 of Hebrews 12. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, 
lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You see, the writer writing to these Hebrews, he knows they're going to be discouraged. They're in a spot to be discouraged because they're being persecuted. I mean, they have no doubt lost a family, friends, relationships, all because of this belief in Jesus. They've lost all these things and now uh, probably lost homes and their health is being in question. They're being physically abused and mistreated. And so what he knows is uh, they're questioning things because of persecution. And the writer's saying, look, look to what Jesus endured for you. Yes, you're going through a lot. Yes, you're enduring persecution, but look to the one who gave it all on your behalf and, and let that be your encouragement. Now, if that wasn't encouraging enough, here's what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, in one of the most uh, discouraging verses you're going to hear today. He says, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That is not one that is popular most Sunday mornings. But to say that all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. That's not a maybe. That's not a might be. That is a will. Now, persecution can take on many different forms. It might look like not getting a job promotion, not being able to close on a deal, having a relationship fall apart that you were so sure was going to work out. It might look like a physical retaliation, but oftentimes it's the emotional trauma that takes way more of a toll on us. What Paul says is that as you follow Christ, you're going to be persecuted. Now, here's the thing. If I left you there, that's not that exciting. But if I turn to the left one page to 2 Timothy chapter 2, here's what Paul writes. This is a faithful saying. For if we died in him, we also live with him. Verse 12, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. So the promise of living godly and suffering through whatever this life can throw at us, I've shared this with you before, that the closest as a believer you're ever going to get to hell is right here, right now, this life. This is as close as you're ever going to get to experiencing hell. But for those that do not believe, this is as close as you're ever going to get to heaven. This is as close as it's going to be. Paul's saying, look, you're going to suffer persecution. There's going to be times where you're going to want to quit, but here's the promise. For him who endures, he shall also reign. There's a promise of something so much better. Now, verse 4 of chapter 12 of Hebrews. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Um, this is one of those verses that I would like to just mark out of my Bible. Because I feel like lots of times, like, Lord, I've resisted sin. I've done so good. Look at me go. I want to pat myself on the back. And then I get to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, and I read, You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Go, yeah, you got me on that. I have not yet resisted anywhere close to bloodshed. And what the Lord is communicating here is that there is one who has resisted unto bloodshed he is the Christ who as he confronted this reality that he was headed to the cross as he's there in the garden of Gethsemane and he's crying out to the Lord in his flesh the last thing he wanted to do was go to the cross I mean tremendous physical pain yes but the emotional pain being separated from the father having all the sins you and I have committed will commit uh, might commit all laid upon 
His shoulders are anything but that. And I believe the victory that you and I get to experience and enjoy actually occurred here even before the cross. So as he was on his knees crying out, Luke chapter 22 verse 44 says that as he prayed, not my will but thy will be done, so much pressure was being applied to the Christ that he sweated great droplets of blood. He was resisting the urge to say, Dad, send those 10,000 legions of angels to save me from this spot. I don't want to be in this position anymore. He resisted unto bloodshed, which is encouraging to us when we think we're resisting. I don't know about you, but when I think I'm resisting, this is my normal posture. Ready to resist. I'm going to fight to the death to resist. But what we see from the example of Jesus is, this is his posture. Resisting with open arms, open hands, not closed fists. Giving our will over to the will of the Father. Yes, Lord, they're taking advantage of me. Yes, Lord, I'm being persecuted in all these innumerable ways. But yes, Lord, you see. You're a God who sees me in the spot that I'm in. Now, he continues in verse 5 saying, Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? So now the analogy is getting ready to change from an endurance race to a father-son relationship. Verse 5 continues, quoting from Proverbs chapter 3, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. Verse 7, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But, verse 8, If you are without chastening of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Verse 9, furthermore, we have had human fathers who correct us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? And so as the metaphor now changes to one of a father-son relationship, we have this father, this picture of a father chastening, reprimanding, his son. And immediately for some of us, as we've studied through Hebrews, you go, whoa, wait a minute, got a question here. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 12, chapter 10, verse 17, I was told my sins are completely gone and forgotten. I've been forgiven. He remembers no more. And then I get here and he's chastening me. And so we have this seeming uh, contradiction in terms when why would he chasten me if he's already forgiven me? And I think it's important for us to stop and understand why God chastens us. First of all, note that God's chastening is never punitive. It is always corrective. When we have something going on in our lives, he is always looking uh, to correct that thing. And so, a little example of this. uh, If you think about Jesus going to the temple for the first time, not the first time, going to the temple in John chapter 2. As he makes his way into the temple there in the second chapter of John, he walks into this scene. 
And the scene looked like uh, in that day, if you were coming from a far distance, say uh, the Galilee region, it was several days' journey, you would come to the temple to sacrifice. And as you're bringing your animal along to sacrifice, uh, it slips and trips and falls, has a little cut on its leg. You would arrive there before the priests who would examine the animal to make sure that it was without blemish. And as they see the cut, the scratch on the leg, or perhaps they just perceived there was something wrong with the animal, they would say, oh, thank you so much for bringing your sacrifice, but it doesn't qualify. Sorry, friend, it's not good enough. But for you, for a short time only, we've got tremendous uh, pre-approved temple sacrifices right here that you can own. Now, they are double uh, the going rate, but you can have one of these temple sacrifices. Now, if you were a person who is travels like me, you're like, look, I got a bunch of kids. I can't take animals on top of my 8,000 children. I'm going to instead just bring some money. I'm just going to buy the temple sacrifice ahead of time. Uh, when I get to the temple, I got my money. I show up with my Roman coinage. And as I arrive there to the priest, I say, I would like to purchase a lamb for sacrifice. They would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Thank you so much for coming here. We would love to receive your money. Unfortunately, that's not the temple accepted coinage. You're going to have to have the right change to be able to actually purchase a sacrifice. God only accepts the pre-approved temple shekel. And so you're going to have to go to the money changers, turn your money in, and get the pre-approved temple coinage, and then you can come back and purchase the animal you need. Now, when they would arrive to these money changers, you know what would happen. The scales would be out of balance. All of a sudden, uh, my $3 quickly becomes $2. My uh, Roman coinage isn't good enough, so I have to buy more, spend more. And what was happening is the people were being taken advantage of. So as we arrive to John chapter 2, Jesus walks up on this scene. People with willing hearts that wanted to sacrifice. They wanted uh, salvation. They wanted a covering for their sins, yet they were being fleeced by these uh, men, these priests who were busy getting rich. And so what Jesus does, you guys probably know the story, is he goes, uh, he goes uh, a little bit crazy, a little bit Rambo. He begins to throw tables over. He fashions a whip. He drives the money changers out. He chases everybody out of the temple scene. And we read that, and we're like, yeah, go Jesus. That's what I want to do to those hypocrites, yeah. But how does that relate to the story? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is what the Apostle Paul says in the 6th chapter of 1 Corinthians, um, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and, ha and you are not your own? Your body is is the temple where the Spirit dwells. As He has now given you His Spirit, you are now the residence of God. Your body is a temple, and it is not your own. You were bought at a very steep price. And so as Jesus now comes into the temple, and He sees all the ways that I manipulate, and I cheat, and I make myself the hero of my own story, and I do all these little things that are essentially robbing me these things are robbing me he is not afraid he is not ashamed
driving out the money changers, running these things clean out of my life. It becomes much more personal when we see what God is actually up to. His chastening is not a punishment. It's to correct us. As we continue, here's the reason for his correction. His chastening is because sin has consequences. That for, for God, he's forgotten our sin. He's let them be as far as the east is from the west. Yet what you know about sin in your life is it has a consequence. There's a price to be paid. As Moses is speaking to the nation of Israel in Numbers chapter 32. I know you guys love to go to the book of Numbers. Uh, but as you're there in Numbers chapter 32, this is what Moses tells the nation of Israel. He says, if you do not do so, listening to the word of the Lord, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Did you catch that? Your sin will find you out. That is not God finding out our sin. He's not uh, sniffing out our sin like some kind of three-headed sin sniffer. Just, I think I smell some sin in your life, boy. He is not sniffing around like that. It's my own sin that finds me out. It's my own wickedness that actually finds me. God's not surprised whatsoever. He knew that was right there the whole time. He's not shocked. You can't surprise God. This is why uh, when Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, he says, don't be deceived God's not going to be mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap the flesh. And what the flesh produces is corruption, death, destruction. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will from the Spirit reap life. Life is what the Spirit actually brings forth. But our sin is what leads to death. So as we see God trying to correct sin, He's trying to help us avoid consequences. When you read that God hates sin, here's why he hates it. It's not because it's bad. God hates sin because it's bad for us. He doesn't want us to have to suffer through the consequences of our own sin. And so as a good father, he is trying to redirect us. He's trying to correct us, to get us in a spot where we don't have to suffer any longer. And so as he's just gone through all these Old Testament heroes that we read in chapter 11, what you know about those stories is they had a tremendous amount of faith, but as they lacked faith, they also had a tremendous amount of consequences. As Abraham didn't have enough faith that God would provide him and Sarah a child, and he went in and slept with Hagar, and she had herself Ishmael. What we know is to this very day, the Ishmaelites, the, the Arab people, there's a reason why there's a continuous fight in the Middle East, over the same piece of property. It goes back to that time in Genesis. It's the same battle. It's these consequences that God wants us to avoid. And so God loved Abraham. He's the father of the faith. He doesn't remember the sin, and yet there's still a consequence in place, and he wants us to avoid it. Same with uh, David, a man after God's own heart, and yet because of his sin of adultery and then murder, and then cover up, and all the things that happened, what the Lord said is, David, I love you, but the sword is never going to leave your house. And I don't think God said that uh, proud of any of that statement. I think his heart broke as he gave David that word. And what you know from the rest of David's life from that point forward, the sword never left his house. Sons disrupting things inside his home, uh, incest, more murder, it was just awful. 
David continually following after the Lord after this, but his sin found him out. So this is what the Lord desires for us as a good father to avoid. Verse 10, as we continue, For they indeed for a few days chastened us, speaking of these fathers, as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. What is God's desire for chasing us? It's so that we can have holiness. My nature, my personality is one that I, I want what the flesh wants. And as a result, my own sin nature, it brings about self-destruction. This is what the Lord wants me to avoid. Instead, what he wants in my life is holiness. It's purity. And I say that in 2023, knowing that almost all of us, when we hear the word holiness or God saying you should be holy, we go, man, that sounds weird. Like that sounds... We make holiness synonymous with weirdness. Like nobody's going to want to talk to somebody that's that holy. And yet God's desire is for us to not be weird, but to actually have eternal life. What Peter writes about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, uh, well, throughout chapter 1, he, he says in verse 16, Be holy, for I am holy, speaking about holiness and set-apartness. In verse 22, he says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all Flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. And what happens? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Why is holiness so important? Because everything else we invest our time and our effort in. If it's not pure and it's not holy, the reality is it's all going to burn up. It's all going to go away. It doesn't matter how much we have, how much we don't have, <clears throat> how much we wish we had. It is all going to go away. The most beautiful grass in the field with the most beautiful flowers, uh, they're going to burn up is what the Lord says. And so our encouragement here is to actually uh, be holy. And as we are holy, it's going to look like loving on people. It's going to look like caring for one another. Going the extra mile, not because it does me any good, but because I know I can help you. It's getting out of my comfort zone that I'm in, and this is the message of the gospel. This is the truth of the message of the gospel. On verse 11, as we wrap up this morning. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What he's saying here is uh, no one is excited about the wooden spoon. None of us, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. We grew up in the wooden spoon uh, generation uh, in that era, and I got to tell you, um, my mother, who's in the back of the room, but don't look at her, that'll make her nervous, but she is a little thing, but she could pack a wall up with the wooden spoon. I mean, she could flat out get after it, and when she switched and transitioned from wood to plastic, not as much give in the plastic spoon. I got to tell you, from experience, the wood was pref preferable. But it was always done, I knew it was always done to correct a behavior. 
It was done to correct and to redirect and to stop what was taking place. The, the hope behind it was a, a behavioral change as the pain subsides. We weren't excited about the wooden spoon, but the next time you had that opportunity, you had that memory in the back of your mind like, man, that hurt. I don't want that again. And so is true with um, our scars, with the things that we have experienced, with the, the journey that we have been on. And, and for most of us, the tendency is going to be to want to not talk about it, to not share with people about our past, to talk about what we've been delivered from, to share the scars that he's healing up now, or that he is in the process of taking care of, or the things of our past. But I want to encourage you to share to talk about those things, to be vulnerable. Because here's a few things that happen. Uh, one, it, it's a humbling reminder. It, for me, when I get the opportunity to share about my past, like I did at the first of the year, and last week in Farmington again, I get the chance to share about things that are humbling. It's not prideful to get up and talk about the ways I failed, but it's humbling. I know what I've been delivered from. It saves me from being puffed up, I can tell you that right now. The next thing it does is immediately you become relatable to people. When you share about the things you struggle with, uh, those that are in the midst of the fire that are struggling, uh, you become human. When we put on our super holy Jesus smile and act like nothing's going wrong, I'm good, you seem uh, completely not relatable. And I'm not saying we should all be crying all the time with everything that we do, but but there's a point where we get the chance to actually bring the wall down and go, yeah, I, I can be relatable. Or this is what God's done in my life. Because the last point on that that I wanted to make is it gives them hope when they're going through a similar circumstance. When they're battling and in the middle of the race, like I don't know that there's ever going to be an end to this. We have the opportunity through sharing, through talking about our scars that we've survived is to look at those, be humbled, to be relatable, and then go, you can make it too. You can survive this. You can have hope in this spot. There will come a day where you're going to be delivered from this. The last thing I wanted to share about scars and, and making it known comes from John chapter 20, verse 27. And in this spot, what uh, Thomas, one of the apostles, says is, look, unless I see... Jesus here and I can touch his scars I'm not going to believe and what the Lord says in verse 27 Thomas reach your finger here look at my hands reach your hand here and put it into my side do not be unbelieving but believing and Thomas answered and said to him my Lord and my God Jesus who was perfect in every way, shared the things that were done to him by me, by the way. Those are my scars he took. But he was willing to share that with Thomas so that he would believe. So that he could come into a spot where he would uh, believe. He deserved absolutely none of what he got. And yet he was willing to share. And so there are some of you who you've got scars you probably didn't deserve. They, they weren't they weren't uh, seemingly for you, and yet you have an opportunity to share. And as you share those things, uh, don't be surprised if people believe. 
my Lord and my God is oftentimes the response when we get to show a changed life, one that has been rebuilt from the inside out. One last thing I want to share with you this morning as we reflect on him here in just a moment for communion and you get your heart and your mind ready, here are lyrics from a Casting Crowns song called Only Scars in Heaven. And they say, what, what gripped me this week as I was thinking about it was this, that the only scars in heaven, they won't belong to me and you. There'll be no such thing as broken and all will be made new. And the thought that makes me smile now, even as the tears fall down, is that the only scars in heaven are the hands that hold you now. That the only scars that are going to exist for all of eternity are his. We're going to be healed. But we're going to have the opportunity to remember with a smile on our face, but also uh, probably a little bit of a gut check. Like, he did that for me. And we have an opportunity here in just a minute to do that in the here and now as we celebrate communion. I want to encourage you to do that. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for scars. Lord, I thank you for my own that I've been delivered from. Lord, I thank you for the ones that you are delivering me from currently. I thank you for the opportunity to share and to be real with one another. But more than all that, I thank you for your scars. I thank you for the ones that you endured, the, the cross for our behalf, despising the shame, and yet for the joy that was set before you. You, you gladly did it on our behalf. Thank you for your scars, Lord. Help us as we remember what you did for each of us. And we reflect with a smile on our face, maybe a little tear in our eye. Lord, just how much you gave for each of us. And so the next time I don't want to give that or I don't want to go there or I don't want to do that thing, Lord, help me remember just how much you did on my behalf. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your chastening, for your redirection in my life and in the lives of many of those I know out in this audience. <laughs> thank you, Lord, for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You were waiting without hope, without light, till from heaven you came running. There was mercy in your eyes. To fulfill the law of prophets, to a virgin came the word. From a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. To reveal the kingdom come and to reconcile the lost 
to redeem the whole creation you did not despise the cross for even in your suffering you saw to the other side knowing this was our salvation Jesus, for our sake, you died. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. God of glory, majesty, Praise forever to the King of Kings. In the morning that you rose, all of heaven held its breath. Till that stone was moved for good, for the Lamb had conquered death. And the dead rose from their tombs, and the angels stood in awe for the souls of all who'd come to the Father are restored. In the church of Christ was born, then the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. By His blood and in His name, in His freedom I am free. For the love of Jesus Christ, who has resurrected me. Everybody sing along. Oh, praise the Father. Praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. God of glory, Praise forever to the King of Kings. First Corinthians chapter eleven. And the Apostle Paul is trying to reestablish a communion celebration that Jesus started that they lost their way in the middle of. And what Paul said in verse 23 was, For I received the Lord, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, Father, we do just that this morning. We take the bread and we give thanks. We thank you for being willing to endure the cross, even though you despise the shame, to be broken on our behalf, to receive the scars that 
uh, each of us so deserved. We thank you, Lord, for your body, broken for us. In Jesus' name, amen. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Father, we thank you so much for pouring yourself into a man for becoming the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Lord, thank you for as the Passover Lamb, uh, by its blood, the nation of Israel was saved, that by the perfect blood of the Lamb, uh, we can all be saved. Lord Jesus, uh, help us as we uh, continue to go about this uh, journey. We are oftentimes ashamed. We look back on our scars and our failures and our flaws and and we don't want to talk about them. We don't want to connect or relate to people. And yet, if you hadn't have talked about it, if you hadn't have wanted to relate to people, uh, there would be uh, no Thomas moments, my Lord and my God, where we can see you so clearly showing your perfect work. Father, help us as we journey down that road. And we thank you so much for your blood. We thank you for your covering for your protection. We thank you for your healing. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all the things that your blood affords us now access to. But most importantly, we thank you for the access to the throne of heaven. We thank you that we can come boldly to the throne of grace because of, of this blood right here that you shed on our behalf. That we can now crawl up onto the lap of the Father and say, Dad, here's what's going on. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. And with that, we get the opportunity to stand up and sing one last song together. was defined by all the things I've done free my shame would be exposed afraid of really being known but then I gave my heart a home I walked out of the darkness and into the light from fear of shame into the hope of life. First he called my name and made a way to fly out of the darkness and in to the light. Years of keeping secrets wondering if I would change when you're hiding all alone your heart can't turn into a stone 
And that's not the way I want to go. As I walk out of the darkness and into the light, from fear of shame into the hope of life, mercy calls my name and made a way to fly out of the darkness and into light. There's no place I'd rather be. is marvelous you have come to set us free you are marvelous your light is marvelous to me la 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 So I walked out of the darkness and into the light. Fear of shame into the hope of life. First call my name and made a way to fly. Out of the darkness and into the light. La, 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 la. All of God's people said.